Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So, over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life, and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So, come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey, guys. And remember, only positivity. Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off podcast number 39 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. Now, before diving into the book and everything like that for today, let's go and start with the level set. So, you know, as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life, Um, through cannabis, traveling, fitness, photography, you know, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books I've been reading as of late, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. Now, usually around this time, we'll start with the story. But, um, you know, one thing I want to share with you guys today is that I started Sober October um, yesterday. So I'm doing October 5th, through November 6th. Um, So that's 31 days. So we're going to see how it goes. So I've been doing this for the past three years. um, And now I got a couple buddies joining me. So that's really fun. It's even easier, I think, because we're all keeping each other accountable. Now, what Sober October means to me is um, obviously no drinking, uh, no no cannabis for for these 31 days. But it also means a few other things. So um, just going over some of my habits, right? Not to brag, nothing like that. Just going over some of my habits. So, um, you know, every day I, I take my, my multivitamins. I take protein. Uh, I do fiber. I also, I read every day. I do pull-ups, push-ups, squats every day. I also do my, you know, my actual workout every day. Um, and I stretch every day. So for the month, uh, for the, th- the next 31 days, I want to razor in on them. Now, you know, Obviously, we have these habits, and sometimes as we go through them, um, we don't get a break from them, and sometimes we just go through the motions, right? And especially with travel being restricted this year, it's been kind of tough for me to like unwind or, um, you know, feel like I've gotten away so I can come back and focus, right? So essentially, I'm going to attempt to be as alert on, on my habits, as conscious um for the next 31 days. Now, you know, as we know, we all have our different ways of, of um, releasing stress, right? You know, some people drink, some people smoke, some people eat, um, things like that. So what I want to do for this next month is really cut out any of those type of things, right? Not that I ever overindulge. One thing that I really want to do is ensure that I am in full control of my emotions, right? And not the other way around. So sometimes it's easy to rationalize, oh, you know, maybe... You know, I'll uh, I'll eat this at the end of the week, uh, and that'll make up for me being good during the week. Or you know, I'm waiting for that joint at the end of the week, or something like that, right? So, what I want to do right now is make sure that I'm I'm experiencing conscious thought at all times, and not that I'm not doing that outside of sober October. It's just a good practice in like self denial, self discipline, right? So, anyone who wants to join me, feel free to um, you know post something in the comments or um, reach out to me, shoot me an email. I'd love to add you guys to like a thread um, that I have going with some other people that I'm doing this with. Uh, keep each other accountable, right? So yeah, sober October. Uh, as the podcast come out every week, I'll let you guys know how I'm doing. So I appreciate it. 
So uh, um, that being said, we're going to come back to the book for today, right? So we're going to go through part three of the religions book by Big Ideas Simply Explained. And, you know, a really fun topic today, we're going through um, Hinduism, right? So there's a whole chapter on just Hinduism, and I think it, it really deserves that and much more. Um, it's a very complex religion, and, you know, there's no way you can encompass the whole religion in just one book. So we're going to go over some of the high points, some of the key principles, um, and it's some very interesting things that I got to share. So um, first thing we'll talk about is the time period, right? So we talk about... Hinduism that starts from 1700 BCE. And, you know, one thing to note is that Hinduism is considered one of the oldest religions in the world, if not the oldest religion in the world. Um, but Hinduism itself, the term, is somewhat new. Now, what that means is, you know, Hinduism is not necessarily one cohesive religion. There's a lot of different interpretation um, and a lot of different um, sects of, of Hinduism. So Hinduism, the term, is like an overarching term or an umbrella term uh, for the different branches or the different beliefs of the uh, the people of the, the Indus Valley, right? The indigenous people of like the Indian subcontinent. So, you know, that being said, there's also a few different texts that encompass um, Hinduism as a whole, right? And many people follow different texts. So there's no um, equivalent to the Bible. There's not just one book, right? There's many different ones, and we're going to go through a few of them uh, in a few minutes. So um, the word Hindu itself, right, it has origins from the, the Indus River, right? Uh, so that, that's what distinguishes the type of uh, beliefs, right? The religions and the regions such as Islam, Jainism, Buddhism, right? They're specific to a region sometimes. So um, a, a few a few high-level points about Hinduism is that it doesn't really claim any one single like Messiah or prophet. There's no worship of just one God. Um, it doesn't follow just one like philosophic direction or one set of rules or religious acts. So, and and you know one thing I really enjoy about the, about Hinduism as a religion is that it can it can really be pegged as a way of life and nothing more. Right? There's some there's some really great principles that you learn um, as you go through scripture in Hinduism. Uh, samsara, one of those. Right? We talked about with Jainism. Um, releasing from that circle of life, death, and rebirth. Um, and that's called samsara in Hinduism. Also a really good documentary on Amazon Prime, samsara, super trippy. Um, it was one of the first documentaries I've seen without any words in it. So I, I would suggest anyone watch that too. Um, so let's talk about a couple concepts here, right? Before we get into this specific scripture. So Atman um, is the soul. That's what they identify the soul as. That's a term. There's a term called moksha, and that is the release from the cycle of life, death, and rebirth, right? Um, also, a similar concept in Zoroastrianism, like we talked about in the last podcast. So, some of the standard beliefs uh, across all Hindus are some of the gods, okay? So, they call this thing the three murti. So, murti means like the deity or the statue of God, and they call this the three murti, right? So there's three gods encompassed. There's Brahma, who is the creator. There's Vishnu, um, who is the protector. And there's Shiva, who is the destroyer. Now, some of the sacred texts 
with this religion are um, the Vedas, the Upanishads, you know, the Mahabharat, the Ramayan, and the, the Bhagavad Gita, right? Now, you can hear me talking a little bit more enthusiastic about this, and that's because, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up Hindu, right? And I don't know if I, like I said, I don't know if I identify as Hindu anymore, but Hinduism is a way of life, right? So I think some of the concepts I've definitely applied in my life, and that's why I really like the religion as a whole. But I also am really into Buddhism these days. I really like the concepts in there. So um, yeah, I don't want to like niche myself. I think there's good points to be had in all religions, right? So, you know, one staple of Hinduism is tolerance. So um, Alexander the Great, Muslim conquerors, Christians, they all occupied India at one point, right? But Hinduism began to adapt. They took this stance of, you know, nonviolence and um, they accepted influences. And um, we see a good example of how a religion can be timeless, right? Adapt with the times um, as opposed to staying rigid. So a, a lot of level setting there, but let's jump into the first book that we're going to talk about. Um, and that's the Vedas, right? So it's a, it's a set of books. So um, the Vedas was said to have developed around 1500 through 500 BCE, so very old. Um, so some of the some of the uh, the attempts or some of the reasoning behind this book being developed was that, you know, it really attempts to explain how how humans fit into the universe as a whole, and you know, one thing I find really interesting about that is is how many of us actually think about how we fit in this world, right? We get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, the social obligations, you know, grocery shopping to uh, dry cleaning, working out. We get, there's so much noise in life, right? Um, visiting family. Um, but do we ever think about like why we're here, right? Are we here to um, start a family? Are we here to do this? Are we here to do that? Um, and I think once you start thinking about it, and your direction, why you're here, and things like that, it can be really daunting, right? It's, I, I mean, I find it daunting. I'm not really sure what my purpose is. You know, I'm not really sure why I'm here, but all I can do really is uh, try to gain knowledge and figure that one out, and I think it's a life endeavor. So not to get on my soapbox there, but Hinduism really seeks to explain why we are here. And they do that through identifying three relationships. So it's gonna be person to the divine, person to person, and person to self, and it really lists out rules or suggestions on how we can maximize or optimize those relationships. So we, that brings us to our first concept, which is dharma. Okay, so dharma is defined literally as the right way. So you can you can equate that to truth um, and things like that. So, but what what the book outlines is that it means that there is an order. There's a structure to our world. There's a right way to our world, and it's not just random events. Okay, so what 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 you can see is as you get closer to the religion that there's various gods that come to light in in the Gita, the Upanishads, the Vedas that symbolize different aspects of this one truth. Okay, um, when I grew up personally, it was really tough to remember all the different gods, and I think you know we were really pressed to memorize them right and I, that's why i didn't really like it as much because you know memorization is um like what why do you do that right why do you memorize things right it's better to just understand but now now that i'm looking back on it i realize that you know many of these gods they all have symbolic meanings behind them right there's there's a goddess of wealth 
Um, Ganpati, right? He's a god of removing obstacles. There's Saraswati, which is the 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 goddess of learning. So um, there's many different gods. There's you know I, I looked it up. There's over 33 million, which I'm not sure is like a correct number, but there's a definitely hundreds or thousands maybe. So anyway, coming back to Dharma, right? This this right way. So people people are expected in the Hindu religion to perform these rituals and make offerings to gods um, as a form of sacrifice. Now, it's not human or animal sacrifice like with the Aztecs or the Incas, the Mayans that we saw uh, early on in this book, but they, there, are, there are very ritualistic items that are said to maintain the order of the universe, right? So um, we'll get more into that, those rituals as, as this podcast goes on. So um, the next topic we'll talk about is the concept of time. So one good distinction to make here is that Hinduism takes a cyclical view of time, not linear, okay? So when we talk about linear thought, it's, a, it's very cause and effect, right? This happened, and that's why that happened. This happened, and then this happened. So because of this, that happened. So I, w I could probably do that for the rest of the podcast. So um, in Hinduism, though, right? it states that something had to have kicked off that whole cause and effect relationship, right? It didn't just start out of thin air, according to Hinduism. But it occurred because of this concept called Brahman, which is the eternal and unchanging reality in Hinduism. So what that means is that it's the central force that keeps everything moving, but it's the actual reality behind this constant process of creation and destruction, right? So there's not just things being created and destroyed at random, but there is this order to it all, and that's called Brahman, right? So rest easy knowing that everything kind of happens for a reason, right? It's Dharma. It's supposed to happen. This is the right way. So, um, you know, a very deep concept, and I just, I just scratched the surface of it, but I would encourage anyone to read up on it. Um, it's very, very, very... Um, thought-provoking. So, you know, we, we said we we're going to talk about religious rituals, right, and order and things like that. So um, around 1700 BCE, um, according to historians, there was a great migration of Aryan people into the Indus Valley, right? So they migrated into that Indian subcontinent. And obviously, they mingled, right? So a lot of practices, rituals were combined at that time um, and they're recorded in some of the hymns and some of the earliest texts of Hinduism, particularly the Vedas, right? So we'll talk about this a little bit more, but we see some early insights of tolerance being a staple of Hinduism, right? So this Aryan race comes in and they mesh, they mesh together, right? They adapt, they welcome other beliefs. And that's why I like this religion, right? It doesn't claim to, to have... Um, precedence over anything else. It's all about learning, all about perspective, all about accepting others. Um, and if we accept, right, if we accept others, if we accept other beliefs, we're only going to learn, right? Sometimes, you know, other beliefs, contrary opinions, contrary beliefs are, are going to set people off. It's going to be apprehensive to someone. But um, if you take it, right, lightheartedly, you can obviously learn something. So, um, like I said, one of the main points of the Vedas was to help people understand their place in the world, um, in the order of the cosmos. So we go forward and talk a little bit more about rituals, right? So 
in, in exchange for some of these ritualistic sacrifices, um, humans would get protection and perhaps some worldly benefits, right? Maybe things like better crops, good weather, robust health, happiness. Now, another constant theme we're seeing with religion so far, right? Um, creating this religion, this belief system related to sustenance and continuity, right? When people don't have an explanation for something, they have this need. They have this need to create an explanation, uh, bring it back into their locus of control. So, um, like I said, common themes throughout all these religions if you just take a closer look. Now, what I'll say is, I think nowadays, you know, Hindu people or those who follow Hinduism might pray for different reasons, right? Um, you know, a lot of us don't really experience poverty like that anymore or, you know, aren't really uh, struggling for food and things like that. Um, it could be, you know, I pray my son or daughter becomes a doctor. I pray my son or daughter marries another Hindu person. Um, I pray for good health. I pray for a positive outlook on life, things like that, right? So um, I think it's changed, but the, the themes are still there. So coming back to the rituals, fire, once again, another recurring theme, is, is a staple um, of Hindu society, Hindu religion, in terms of puja um, or sacrifice, right? In terms of prayer. Um, because Hinduiz Hinduism and Hindus believe that fire exists both in heaven and on earth. And one thing that's different from Jainism uh, that we talked about in the last podcast is that there's no mention of hell in Hinduism, right? Um, I think you just get reborn as something a little bit more negative, right? You might, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, let's say you're a man in this life and you, you live in, uh, uh, in, how do you put it, an immoral life, you, you might come back as like a cockroach or something like that, something negative, right? Um, I'm not sure if a cockroach is negative, but first thing that popped in my head. So, um, coming back to the religion, right? As, as time goes on, um, and societies become more civilized, it becomes important that, you know, people conduct themselves properly through these rituals, right? So the Brahmin class, um, which is, we'll get into this caste system, is it was the highest caste, and only they could conduct these important rituals um, in the right way, so they believed, right? Um, they would prepare the area, they would provide the fire with the proper fuel, which would be like like ghee, which is like kind of like liquid butter or like cereal or fruit or flowers, right? Um, there was even a certain type of wood that was needed to be used. Um, you know, there's this one story, and I don't want to be offensive. Uh, um, there was one story where my parents knew these people who used to go to like our temple, and um, they they used to always try to get us to come over for these like these ceremonies, ritual ceremonies, right? So, so one day, you know, my mom keeps asking me to go, and I, I go, whatever, right? So I'm I'm sitting in this in in, in this uh, this auntie's house that I know, very kind lady, and this uh, this like Hare Krishna looking dude comes in, super scary, right? He's got like um like super long hair, huge beard. Um, he's dressed in all all orange, just like uh, this this toga thing, right? And um, he's got this really like kind of like scary presence to him. It's kind of like a horror movie, right? So we sit down and start doing this this ritual, this prayer. Um, and he starts like lighting the fire and obviously the fire's going um, and we're sitting for like hours and he's like screaming in a different language um, and he's making us raise our hands and everything like that and like this sounds really scary right so like one thing I'll say is that 
you know, this, this long period of sitting with the fire and the loud noises, it honestly could become a spiritual experience for me, right? I could feel something, but I just, I was just so put off by the craziness of it all. Um, that I wasn't sure if I believe in any of that, what was going on. So, you know, there's obviously like parts of the religion that are a little bit more extreme in nature that, um, you really have to rationalize and reason through that. I, I think, you know, um, so anyway, but that's part of spirituality too, right? Like you don't always need an explanation. So long tangent, weird story, whatever. So we'll come back to some of the gods and some of the goddesses, okay? So um, that are worshipped through these rituals. Now there's there's the goddess Agni, who's the god of fire. And um, uh, he, she just she, she destroys humans or demons who try to disrupt the service, right? There's also Varun who's the god of the sky, water, and the ocean. And he's responsible for separating night and day. And there's also Indra. There's a god of thunder, rain, and war, right? So some like some very like Greek, Greek mythology type characters there, you know, um, to put that in perspective. So, you know, we said we we're going to talk about um, some, of the, some of the castes, right? And the ordering of society. So now the, the classification... Of, of Indian society is divided into four groups. Now, the caste system isn't as prevalent today as it once was, but there's still hints of it, right? So even people in America and in, in India too, um, they'll still get married based on their, their caste, right? Oh, I'm Brahmin, I can only marry a Brahmin. Now, that doesn't really, I don't know what that means really in today's society, right? Um, but you know, it's not wrong. It's 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 whatever you believe in, right? You definitely have to do what's best for you. But to to me, it's um if it's a value add for you, then by all means, right? Um, to me, maybe not as big of a value add, right? But like I said, it's all based on perspective. It's all based on your attachment to the the religion and the way you view it. And that's why Hinduism is such a great religion, right? Because it's really up for interpretation. And, and, and it means something different to everyone. It means something um, to me, but that's entirely different than what it might mean to, you know, my family members as well. So, you know, just some food for thought there. So coming back to the caste system, um, what, what I think the caste system is really most attributed to is that we talked about the Aryan race coming in, right? And um, the book says that they were mainly light-skinned. So, and those who are currently in India were a little bit more on the darker side. So another another example of how dark is viewed as inferior um, for centuries, millennia, darkness, is, darkness has been associated with negativity. Um, even in today's age, right? I know so many Indian women who use this product called Fair and Lovely um, to lighten their skin, which is entirely preposterous to me because... Um, not, not because it's like a, a negative quality, but the pressure that's put on these ladies by God knows who, right? By some old random Indian crazy auntie are ruthless, right? They're literally trying to lighten their skin. Um, and, you know, what, what I'll say is like Indian aunties are some of the, some of the worst, right? They, they, the first thing they might say to you when you walk into a room, and especially to a lady, it's a little bit disheartening, is that, hey, you look like you've gained weight or... Um, uh, oh, did you decide to wear that? Um, and you know, you know, what I kind of do with that is, and you know, I don't know if I ever like, I, I don't, I might look like I've gained weight at times, but really if anyone has something negative to say, like, 
I'm an adult now, right? So when we were kids, it's okay, it's fine. But um, no one's ever like put a stop to any of these things, right? To, to that behavior. So a lot of times if someone says, hey, look, you look like you've gained weight, I might say, well, you know, you look like you gained weight too, actually. Um, there was one auntie who looked at me and um, she didn't like my, I have a tattoo on my arm of, a, of some ohms, right? And that's a main staple of the Hindu religion, but it's more of like the frequency of the earth. Um, it has, a, has a, a little bit less of a Hindu connotation to me. But anywho, this, this, this auntie goes, you know, I don't like your tattoo. And I, in the most sarcastic way, I was like, hey, thanks. Um, thanks for your insight. I really appreciate it. I was like, unwarranted, but, you know, spot on. I, I really like that. And she kind of was confused um, by what I what I was doing. But I really didn't know else how to react, right? I wasn't going to be like, you know, get fucked, dude. Um, but so I had to do something a little bit more over the top and sarcastic, um, which was kind of impulsive. But it's like, dude, back up. Like, you know, I didn't ask you for your opinion, but you just felt the need to share it, right? So the whole point is, right, this whole, this whole theme of of, of darkness being negative and the whole fair and lovely thing um, is there's a lot of scrutiny on like like um, you know Indian kids and things like that because you know parents are just ruthless they're just I don't know whatever right um, so let's talk about what the four classes actually are so the first class um, and the highest class is is the Brahmins right so they're the priests and the scholars um, the Brahmins used to be the only ones who could perform like uh, rituals, but they're they're labeled as a superior class. And you know, if anyone cares, I'm also in this class, right? I'm technically a Brahmin or whatever, so put some respect on my name. But just kidding, right? Like I, I definitely don't care about that. So anyway, um, there's the second class is the Kshatriyas, okay? And those are the the military and the administrative class, more like the warriors, okay? So the third one is Vaishya, which is the merchant class. Um, the fourth, Shudra, which are the common working people. And, you know, there's some classes below that, uh, which are historically called untouchables, which is a super bogus name, right? Um, but um, over time, the, like the Brahmins actually began to fear um, of like gene pollution, right? So they'd stopped engaging lower castes. Um, and this is probably where all that bullshit came from in terms of like the egos and the struggles that came into play with the hierarchy of the classes, right? Like, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. Um, and you know, that's still that's prevalent in a lot of Indian communities, right? Or South Asian communities, you know, Islam, Christianity. I know I, I'm I'm friends with a lot of South South Indians who are Christians, Catholics, and it's the same thing there, right? They they want to mesh with their type of Indian, which makes sense. I get the impulse. Um, but, you know, what we do see here is, is like we talked about initially, as, as societies became more civilized, they began to compartmentalize people, right? So we have the scholars, the warriors, the merchant class, the lay people, all these things, right? There's that need um, to compartmentalize. But obviously, that doesn't jive with everyone, right? Can't, you can't rise above your class because it's associated with your last name. So um, people like Buddha and Mahavira from Jainism, they don't. They didn't like that at all. They didn't like the oppression of the caste system. Um, they thought there should be more emphasis on on personal insight versus you know inheriting something. Um, so over time, things changed, and um, Brahmins were no longer required for acts of devotion to take place. Um, you know, anyone who went through the process of becoming an Indian priest or a Hindu priest 
was able to become a priest, and regardless of their class or last name, they could perform these rituals. So, you know, Hinduism is just one of those religions where it's it's severely woven into society, right? In in America, we see some, you know, um, Christian organizations, Catholic organizations, hospital systems that are, you know, religious, but um, they don't necessarily bring it into the workplace, right? But India might be one of those places, you know, where they do, right? They do weave it in. So there is this gray line that is blurred between religion and culture in Hinduism, specifically in India. So um, there can often be these discrepancies between what is part of religion and what is part of culture. So, you know, we'll wrap up the, the Vedas there, and then we'll move on to our next book in the, uh, in the Hindu scripture called the Upanishads. Now, the, the Upanishads were written around the 6th century BCE in India. And there are a series of philosophical texts um, that are more for the advanced scholars, right? They're, it's said that they're mainly reserved for, for gurus and those who are well-versed in meditation, so by no means an introductory book into Hinduism. So the main goal behind Upanishads is for one to understand the self, right? They understand that if you do um, understand yourself, you understand everything, or the, so they claim. Now, I think this is really important. You know, that's an awesome high-level high level, um, language, jibber-jabber, but I think it's very important to be aware of yourself, right? Um, when you are feeling upset, or are you aware of that? Or is, are you letting your behavior just kind of like spiral out of control? When you're happy, are you, are you happy in the right way, right? Or is it more just um, childlike, or is it more frivolous, right? And... One, one quote or one passage that came to mind when I was reading this interpretation of the Gita was, you know, it's, it's almost unhealthy to be at the extremes, right? To be very happy or very sad. You know, staying in a level of contentment is ultimately the most sustainable, right? Maybe, maybe not, but that, that really resonated with me, right? So how do, you, how do you get there? How do you get to this level of contentment? And you can visualize, process your emotions rationally. You have to you have to find a balance, right? You have to know yourself. So, just an interesting thought there. Um, so we come back, right? Describing the self. So, are we separate from our physical bodies or not? Is there is there a physical body that absorbs like all this sensory information we get, like listening, seeing, touch, taste? And is there another self, like the mind, that processes this? Now, like I said, self reflection is just a good habit in general, right? I don't know if you can ever 100% know yourself, but it's good to be aware of your thoughts and feelings and the way you're trending, right? And can you control that? If you're feeling negative, do you know what to do to snap out of that? Um, or do you ignore your feelings or do you blunt them, right? Through, you know, different, different things like smoking, drinking, food, anything like that. So, you know, the Upanishads ultimately describe the self as having three parts, right? So... The material body, um, a subtle body made up your, of your thoughts and your feelings and your experiences. Um, pure consciousness, right? We come back to that, that concept of Atman, which is in sync with Brahman, which is the true order of the universe, okay? So um, Atman is going to be your own consciousness, right? And that's going to line up with Brahman, that is the true order of the universe like we talked about. So, 
you know, the point of this is, right, is although we do experience ourselves as our own entity, right, we're different from everyone else, we're separate from other individuals, our true selves, right, our true nature is in sync with the order of the world, okay? And I like this, right, and I like this concept because it seems like at baseline, there is one thing that connects all human beings, right? We obviously have a lot of differences, what we believe, where we live, um, our thoughts, our emotions. There's those differences, right? But Hinduism says that there is one true order of the world that's in sync with everything else, right? Um, there has to be something that we all have in common. So in Hinduism, it's this concept of Brahman and Atman, that one true reality. Now, you know, as is common theme in Hinduism, they use they use a lot of stories to describe their concepts. So now the story with this is a sage, um, like a guru, right? He asks his disciple to cut open a fig. And then he says, hey, what do you see in there? And the student says, hey, I see seeds, right? So then the sage says, all right, well, why don't you cut that seed into four pieces? And then the sage asks him, what do you see? And the boy says, I see nothing. And the sage then says, the whole fig is made up of this nothingness. The whole fig tree is made up of this nothingness. Now, I get the concept that he's trying to get at, right? Um, like, there's a, there's a point where as you analyze any physical thing, once you break it down enough, you'll get to a point where there's no excla explanation, right? Um, and that's Brahman, that's Atman. So also, the story is super annoying because, once again, it's like dealing with Morpheus, right? It's like the guy is always talking in this high-level bullshit and saying, like, it could have only happened this way and no other way. And it's like, all right, well, holy shit, dude, like, my bad, right? So... The, the whole symbolism behind the story, awesome, right? But I, I, when I was younger, I used to be like, oh, man, what a cool like story. like It's so dramatic, got, pulling on my emotional strings, right? Then you realize it, and you're like, man, if I ran into a dude that actually put me through that experience, I'd be like, man, what the fuck, dude? This is bogus. Like, just explain to me what you need. But anyway, going off on a tangent there. So the whole point, the whole point of these stories and things like that is not to simply identify with your sensory pleasure, right? Um, appreciate it, but there is more to life than just pleasing your senses, okay? Um, another story that I think is great too, um, the book mentions a chariot, okay? So when we think about what makes this chariot an actual chariot, so is it the wheels? Um, is it the axle? No, it's the whole thing. The whole thing is the chariot. Now, all the individual parts are like our senses, right? And we can reason out, but the driver, the passenger, the one who pro provides direction to this chariot, that's Atman, that's Brahman. So that's a little bit better of a story, right? Um, a little annoying at the onset, but we'll wrap that up there, the Upanishads, and we're going to move on to, um, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, which is, you know, one of my favorite books, okay? And it was a, it was the scripture that I was actually brought up with. So I wouldn't say I'm, like, well-versed in it or I'm an expert on it, but, you know, I know something, I know some stuff about it. So one thing to note is that the Gita is scripture, right? But it's also just a long story, okay? So let me paint this picture for you. 
So amongst a host of characters, two of the main characters are Arjun and Krishna. So Arjun is a warrior prince, okay? And he's standing in the middle of this battlefield called Kurukshetra. Um, and it's a battle of good versus evil. So he, he is ready to fight, but at the last minute he, he drives his chariot into the middle of the battlefield and both sides are waiting and they're, they're looking at him. And he throws his arrows on the ground. He throws all his weapons on the ground. He's like, I cannot do this. And his teacher asks why, right? Krishna asks why. And Krishna is an avatar of Lord Vishnu, like we talked about. But anyway, so Krishna says, why? And Arjun says, well, I see my teachers, my friends, my family on both sides here, on the side of good and evil, okay? And then once Krishna realizes the conundrum, he recites the whole entire Gita to Arjun at that time, telling him that you have to fight for what is right, for dharma, for the right way, right? So a couple issues here, right? A couple issues. Great, dramatic, all that stuff. But the Gita is a long book, okay? And it has thousands of verses in it. And I think it would have been really weird if Arjun and Krishna were just in the middle of the battlefield for three whole hours while everyone just watched and waited and wondered what was going on. I think after about 15 minutes, I would have approached and been like, um, are we doing this? What's going on? But all good. But coming back to Arjun, another part of his dilemma was should he perform his duty as a Kshatriya, right? As the warrior class and fight for his kingdom? Or does does he, he fight this feeling that he'll bring negative karma on himself if he kills someone, right? Um, so he's fighting. He's in that conundrum where he's like, I got to fight. Uh, I got to do my duty as a, as a warrior. But I'm going to kill people for this. And that's going to bring some negative karma to me. And I'm also going to kill people that I love, which I don't want to do. So Krishna tells him, you, you should fight, right? Um, the, the bad karma would only come if you killed for the wrong reasons, like greed or hatred or lust. Um, and there's, this, there's a symbolism here that people should perform their duties selflessly. Kill, but for the right reasons. Now, you can see some early onsets here of how someone could radicalize this religion. Now, there are Hindu radicals, but they're not very prevalent in the Hindu religion, right? So Krishna also says um, that only the physical body is going to die, right? And the soul is going to live on through that principle of reincarnation, okay? So the argument with that philosophy is, shouldn't the act of not killing someone be first in place in terms of morality? Or do you kill someone for a just cause? Now, we go back to Jainism and Buddhism. They emphasize don't kill to begin with. You don't need to kill. Um, there's no need for killing or fighting. Now, like I said, the Gita was a main book used in my upbringing, you know, in that, in that Hindu realm. And it's a great book. It's an awesome book. It has some, some, some great ways for you to live your life in peace. Now, one thing that's a great, great, great principle um, is respecting your teacher. Don't have expectations of others, right? If you have expectations of others, you are only setting yourself up for failure. And that's one thing I truly believe. 
Um, you know, I may not agree with all the spirituality of it all. You know, like, do I do I believe that, um, like, a guy transformed into, like, a 30-foot monster and, and, you know, someone had to bring him down with this arrow that was also a lightning bolt? I don't know if I agree with that or not, right? Like, it's just I'm, I'm not sure if I believe that. But the essence of all of this is great because the symbols, the teachings are practical. It gives you sound advice on how to maintain your mental peace, right? Um, we don't worry about things that are outside of our locus of control, right? Because what is the point of worrying about that? You know, if why why would I worry about um, I don't know, you know, um, a meteor hitting my house or something like that? That was so random, but it's like I don't have control over that, so no need to worry about it. And that comes down even to the day to day things, right? Like I can't control how other people react. I can't control their reactions. What I can control are my reactions, my thoughts, my emotions. Um, taking care of your mind, taking care of your body, taking care of your spirit, right? Thinking pure thoughts, never thinking negative about something else, someone else, um, turning things positive, class half full perspective, right? So the point is, is that I don't like to rely just on faith only, right? It There has to be a practicality to it all, and it has to be timeless. There are principles in all religions that pretty much only apply to the time period that the religion was created. And um, if a religion cannot make it through the years, or if it's not timeless, it's not necessarily going to, the message isn't going to resonate, in my opinion. So, like I said, coming back to the Gita itself, it's a lengthy book. It's a, it would take you a little over three hours to recite it if you did it straight without stopping. And lastly, you know, I also really love reading interpretations of the Gita. Um, it's a book that doesn't lay everything out in black and white, and it's not a manual by any means. Um, and since Hinduism is not just one religion, people interpret it in, in hundreds of thousands of different ways. So, you know, I would encourage anyone just to read up on it, right? You don't need to convert or anything like that. Um, read up on it because it might give you some really great principles um, on how to live your life. So that's all I got for you guys today. Um, excited for the next one. We're going to go through Buddhism, but I'm also going to check in with you guys on how Sober October is going. So um, other than that, um, I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. Feel free to leave me any feedback. And remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.